Welcome to Business Lines State of the Economy podcast where you'll find insight analysis and the story behind the numbers Hello and welcome to the Hindu Business Lines State of the Economy podcast I'm Nivedita Varadarajan We ended August with some really good news India's economy put up a really good performance the GDP grew by 7.8% in the April June quarter of FY2324 Earlier in July, we received some other piece of good news where around 415 million people were pulled out of poverty and we completed this feat in just 15 years. No doubt, India's economic performance played a very important role in this feat. But is the economic growth helping people learn better jobs? This has always been a problem for India. Uh, India has not been able to generate enough jobs. and this could be a reason why politicians usually tend to say hey vote for me in power i will generate an x amount of jobs for the sector but how do we address this problem it's my great pleasure to introduce eminent economist ashoka mudi who is the charles and mary robertson visiting professor in the international school of economic policy at princeton university thank you so much for joining me today sir thank you very much for having me We've always been having this problem, right? Since we liberalized in 1991, India has been normally having higher growth rates, but the job has been lacking. We've been very slow in creating jobs. Why is this so? Okay, so you are asking me to summarize my book in one minute. The reasons have changed over time. The original problem was during the first 17 years of Jawaharlal Nehru. that he consciously chose what we now call a heavy industrialization strategy and heavy industrialization by its very nature does not create many jobs it creates gdp growth although during that period gdp growth also was not particularly high that set in some sense the benchmark because in part the indian entrepreneurs became used to the idea of heavy industry and during that period particularly the late 60s mid to late 60s the east asian nations began to capture global markets for labor intensive products like uh, shoes garments and then increasingly consumer electronics we missed that boat completely we missed that boat because unlike the east asian economies which invested a lot in their human capital especially the education of children and their health and also made a conscious effort to bring women into the workforce one legacy of the nehruvian period was poor education and continued low labor female labor force participation none of that changed in mrs gandhi's period and in some ways mrs gandhi's period is the darkest because from the beginning of that period to the end of the period not only do we lose the labor intensive export race to the koreas and taiwans but towards the end we begin to lose it to china so we never got into the job creation manufacturing that has been the hallmark of job creation elsewhere in asia and having lost that opportunity repeatedly over these uh, first 40 years or so a certain instinct developed in the indian entrepreneur 
for investing in finance and construction rather than in manufacturing. They saw much higher returns. They created all kinds of complaints. Well, you know, there are regulations, this, that, and the other. But they never, there was never a real concerted effort on the part of Indian entrepreneurship to go that route. For that reason, we continue to languish. That we have never overcome that handicap and the bias towards either heavy industry like petrochemicals. Now they're talking about semiconductors. We take semiconductors. There's so much hullabaloo about semiconductors. But ask yourself, how many jobs does it create? You know, I, at one point, was one of the international experts in semiconductor manufacturing in the mid-80s. And even at that time, we used to call semiconductor manufacturing lights-out manufacturing. What does the phrase lights-out mean? It means you can start the factory, you can turn the lights off and leave, and the factory will keep running because it does not need a lot of people. So much, so much excitement about semiconductors. We give billions of dollars of subsidies for semiconductor manufacturing, but it's sort of a modern form of Nehruvian heavy industry. You can call it any other name, but it is exactly that strategy. We don't like to do things which require employment. So what are the sectors should we focus on then? Because things like, say, textile, it requires... A good bunch of investment, but it also we also have to keep costs low because people like uh, countries like Bangladesh or China, they've already done very well in the sector. And to compete with them, even though we have a good big textile industry here in India, we are not able to play with them and to compete with them. Right. So what sector should we focus on? What sectors are labor intensive, which still makes us competent to compete with the rest of the world? As an economist, I don't like the concept of choosers. The, the idea of choosing sectors means we know which sector. Hmm. No, no one, no one a priori, no one before the fact knows which sector is going to do well. That the task is to create the necessary basis for labor-intensive manufacturing. And as I've already hinted, if you look at the examples, Korea, Taiwan, China, more recently Vietnam, and even in a modest way, Bangladesh. What have they done right? They have not chosen sectors. What they have done is they've educated their people. They have created the conditions for women to come into the workforce. And it is those conditions that are important. And creating those conditions then allows a business person to decide, okay, yeah, you know, today the XYZ is looking good. Rather than these sort of PLI type of schemes, which say, we are going to do laptops. That's that's nonsense. That is bad economic policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you want to do is to say, here are the conditions that are going to allow a competitive labor-intensive manufacturing. I'm going to add one more thing before uh, I let uh, turn it back to you. I've argued recently that India's exchange rate is overvalued and that we need a much cheaper rupee. I have argued that the East Asian economies created demand by making their currencies cheaper so that they became attractive for international buyers to buy from them. And they created the supply by having good education and female labor force participation. You need all the three 
to come together, that creates the environment, that creates incentives for entrepreneurs to do labor-intensive manufacturing. Right now, we have none of the three. So uh, before we go into skilling and lessons we can learn from countries like Vietnam, I just wanted to know what are the other factors that are needed for us to have a good and a productive labor-intensive industry? I'm giving you my list of three. Education, greater uh, female labor force participation, and a cheaper rupee. Those three things. You do those three things, you're 90% of the way. And you don't do those three things, you don't get anywhere. It's not like there's a substitute for them. If we are devaluing, if we are uh, devaluing the rupee, one that make imports costlier and one that have an impact on the economy as well. Nivedita, yeah. there is always a trade-off in economic mm-hmm. policy. I am trying to go back into history. This trade-off, the Koreans faced, the Taiwanese faced, the Japanese faced, China faced. Yes, of course, it's going to raise imports, the import costs. But the question is, there is no free lunch. Uh, so the bottom line is that, yes, of course, this will happen, that there will be a uh, some inflationary tendencies, but you also create jobs. It is this trade-off you have to encounter. And the evidence, I'm going to repeat one more time, is that in the net, there's no question in my mind, is that especially for India at this time, because in, remember, India is an uncompetitive economy. And we know that because they're trying to give subsidies. Why are we giving subsidies? Because we believe we are uncompetitive. But Mm -hmm. the more efficient way of dealing with lack of competitiveness is to devalue the rupee. So you're saying devalue the money instead of giving a subsidy to the corporate is the basis. Yes, because of a fundamental political reason. Mm -hmm. When we give subsidies to individuals, and to individual sectors. We are making a choice as though we know which is the right person and which is the right sector. Hmm. Devaluation says, okay, this is a level playing field. It's a broad thing. Exactly. You go do what you want. Hmm. I'm trying to create the conditions for you to manufacture efficiently and to sell efficiently. Even if we devalue the rupee now, we still have the other two issues. Uh, The lack of women in the workforce and education. So let's tackle education first. The, yes. uh, this current government has brought about the national education policy. Does it focus uh, enough on skilling uh, the youth and on imparting technical education, something that is needed for labor productivity? My reading of history is this business of skilling and so on is not what is relevant. Mm-hmm. What is relevant is mass education. People should know how to read to write and account. I keep coming back to my book because that's my sort of my most recent memory. Adam Smith is a name that's familiar to you and to your audience. 1776, Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith uses the phrase, read, write, and account. He says that even the most basic professions need that ability. Why do I repeat what Adam Smith said 250 years ago? Because our school education today does not give us the ability to read, write, and account. Or for a large number of people, I mean, you have seen all the studies, the Pratham studies, the NCRT studies. Today, global challenge is no longer bringing children to school. It's the quality of Pretty much worldwide pretty much worldwide. And India has come late to this party. 
but yes, okay, so there are there's almost hundred percent or maybe there is hundred percent primary enrollment uh, in schools. And so the new the new frontier is the learning ability. This is where Vietnam is like light years ahead of us. Mm. Vietnam has some of the best educated children, not just in Asia, but in the world. So how do we solve this problem? Education. How do we solve the problem? We do, we educate our children. We get better teachers. Remember, this is why I tend to have a bleak outlook. You don't solve this problem by saying a national economic policy or a national education policy. Good education needs good nutrition, needs good health, needs good neighborhoods, needs above all good teachers. The, the, again, the worldwide evidence is that you cannot have education without good teachers. There's no point in changing curricula and you know one exam or two exams. That's all gimmickry. What you want is good, dedicated teachers who hold the hands of children. There's so much, so much rara these days mm. about something that people are calling digital infrastructure. As though digital infrastructure is going to substitute for human beings. The primary principle in education is human-to-human -human interaction, where the teacher is in the classroom, walking around the classroom, looking at children in the eye. Children are dealing with their peers. You create an environment of learning. Yeah. All the pedagogical stuff may be relevant, but mm -hmm. in the end, you want to create a teacher who can create an environment for learning. So the point on digital education is absolutely right. We saw, we have evidence of it from the COVID period where there is a gap in learning and it's well documented now, right? So to sit only on digital education is a problem. Yeah, yeah. Digital education is not going to solve nothing. At best, it is a aid to a teacher. We are creating uh, medical colleges in every district. But where are the teachers? Even IITs. There are IITs that don't have teachers. The, the fundamental lack is educators because we do not encourage that system. You know, for example, Finland is considered to have the best education system in the world. What is remarkable about Finland is that teachers are regarded as some of the highest members of society. We have started paying teachers well, but we still do not give teachers the respect and accord in society that they deserve. The result is we have made the situation worse. Mm -hmm. How? Because today a teacher's job is very attractive financially for a lot of people. What do they know? They need some teacher certification. Teacher certification is given by fly-by-night colleges operated by local politicians. There's a whole mafia, for example, in Maharashtra that gives you teacher certifications. Uh, it's, it's true also even, even in Tamil Nadu, it is true. So, so if you're not going to create a system that generates good quality teachers and give them respect in society, you're asking me a question, how do we become productive? That is where we have to start. Start in the school, start with the teacher. If you do not teach kids in second grade, then by the time they are in fifth grade, they have fallen further behind. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they are in eighth grade, they have fallen even further behind because they accumulate the handicaps over time. And in ninth, some of them just stop going to school or they somehow pass through with grace marks. 
This is another feature I find that grace marks has become a very common feature in Indian school system. And so they say pass percentage has gone up. For heaven's sake, pass percentage has gone up, I understand. But have you taught the kids? That's a that's a problem everywhere. Even now, if you're going looking at the cutoff marks for prestigious schools or colleges across India, they're like at 98%. Who gets 98% in English? I don't know. What yeah, other takeaways we can take from countries like China? You gave Malaysia as an example, Vietnam as an example, and said that Vietnam is doing really, really well when it comes to education. What are they doing right, which we are not doing, which we can take from them? Just giving you a, a sort of sketch of the answer. You have to invest in the kids mm-hmm. in this more socially organic way. Mm-hmm. Remember, development is not about cookie cutters. Mm-hmm. It's not about here's a formula, apply it and it'll happen. It is a process of creating the social norms and accountability. Social norms would say we value education. We value good health. It's not that education and health are secondary. Oh, we also do education and also do health. But basically, we are spending all our money on flyovers because that's where that's where the money is. So I was in Delhi recently and I read one day that Kejriwal is creating something called model schools. So I'm looking at what, what is a definition of a model school? It's got smart blackboards. For heaven's sake, do you not get it? What is a smart blackboard going to do? Where in the list of a model school is teacher? The the priorities are all wrong. You know, in my book, I use the phrase doctrine of salvation by bricks. You create bricks. Now you create digital bricks. And you say that you're going to solve problems. I'm not saying this is easy. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I have a cookie cutter solution. One of the one of the complaints my even my friends have is, Ashok, you don't tell us what to do. I cannot tell you what to do other than to tell you where to look. Because if there was a cookie cutter solution, everyone in the world would have found it. Uh, let's talk about the other problem, the lack of women in the workforce. It's been yeah. a problem since the Nehruvian era. It became worse uh, over yeah. time. So why are women not coming to the workforce as much as they should. We know from uh, records that more women are getting educated today than ever before. Why are they not coming into the workforce then? So let's separate the rural and urban, okay? Mm. In the rural agriculture, sometime, you know, post-green revolution, the increased mechanization of agriculture had a very odd odd, uh, consequence, which was that although the mechanization is not directly applied to weeding, but mm-hmm. mechanization reduces the need for weeding. And women were mainly, were dominantly in weeding. And so the need for women in agriculture suddenly declined. That was one reason. In urban areas, my understanding is that there is still a pervasive sense of violence that women face. It may not be every day, but for example, I uh, I was listening to a debate uh, that Shashi Tharoor and Jain Sinha were having, and they were talking about all kinds of very glamorous things. And one woman stands up and she says, when I travel to work, I feel like I'm in a war zone. Now, I don't know if this is representative. Some people, women say in urban areas that things have become slightly better. But in general, my sense is 
that women, when they step out into open public spaces, there is still a sense of fear. So the lack of opportunities, the sense of violence, and overarching patriarchal norms, that combination, again, creates this perpetuation of low female labor force participation. You ask a very direct question, and I appreciate it, but the answer is not straightforward. Again, there is no cookie cutter over here. So on both education, health, on the one side, which I call human development, on female labor force participation, no. The reason for pessimism is that there are no simple solutions to this. This is a creation of overall social norms and accountability. I, I keep emphasizing social norms because the importance of norms where people believe that the others are acting in good faith and therefore makes sense for me to also act in good faith. It, it might sound a very sort of abstract and even romantic thing to say, unless there is a sense we are in it together, rather than this radical individualism that creates a sense of fragmentation in society. And that is a severe problem in the provision of public goods. Uh, when you when we talk about gig economy, mm. people tend to talk about gig economy like it's the answer to all of our solutions. But recently there was a report which said that gig workers' earnings are falling. In the report, I think there were all people who are working as delivery partners for various startups. So how can we address this problem? So if gig economy is going to become more and more relevant and prevalent in India, how can we ensure that these workers get paid well? First of all, the gig economy and its long-term prospects are not clear to me. I know Niti Ayog has some projections, but trust me, I, I don't believe any of these projections. Let me tell you why. COVID period was a very special period. During this period, there was an increased reliance on digital uh, technologies and a pent-up demand amongst affluent Indians for digital services got revealed. It created a gig economy. It gave momentum to a pre-existing uh, gig economy. At the same time, there was cheap money for startups. It seemed like this is a wonderful thing. All those factors are changing. The money has become uh, more costly. The startups are struggling. Even Baiju's, most representatively Baiju's, is in deep trouble. Whether it will survive as an entity is at this moment a question mark. And most importantly, when we look at gig economy and say, if I ask you the question, how many people order, say, once or twice a month from Zomato and Swiggy? It's very little. Correct. We are probably talking about 20 million people around the country. Therefore, there's always been a notion going back to the mid-80s that India has lots of people, therefore India has a big market. And during this COVID period, because affluent Indians suddenly emerged to create this demand, it seemed like this market is forever. And mm. that this will grow from 10 million people to a billion people. That's bullshit. So even if from now on, whatever growth occurs will be modest growth. Therefore, the implications now for the gig workers, you can see 
that they are being squeezed. Now, I have struggled hard to determine what a gig worker gets paid, and it seems to vary a lot from 10, 15,000 rupees a month to 30,000 rupees a month. But ask yourself today, can somebody bring up a family on that kind of money, especially with the fear that the fellow or, or the woman might lose the job suddenly for no clear reason? So the celebration of the gig economy as a growing economy is itself very elitist. The fact that your, job, your job's gone the next day is very scary to me. Yes. So we are creating a new kind of worker where we are burdening that worker with all the risks, paying them a pittance. There is a question mark over the whole model. So I looked at the Rajasthan bill which is supposed to do X, Y, Z. Great on intentions, poor on specifics. Now, you know, it is customary in India to say, at least they have started. Fair enough. Let's see where it goes. I am very worried that this reliance on the gig economy somehow will absolve us of the need to create proper manufacturing jobs and say, well, no, 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 we are, we are creating these jobs. So we are, we are fine. Don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, absolutely. Most worrying part about the gig economy for me is a low-skilled laborer will end up being low-skilled laborer for a very long time. And everybody is supposed to just be okay with it because he's having some sort of employment. That's a very, uh, very, very good way of putting it. I consider a job a good job if there is some prospect that that the children of the of the, the, the worker have reasonable prospect of being better off than their parents. That's a good job. I cannot see how a gig worker can promise that to his or her children. Let's move on to another possible sad note, the role of automation. When automation originally came, it start, it, people were worried that it's going to come after manufacturing jobs. But now we're seeing that it's slowly coming after white, white collar jobs as well. How do you yeah. see automation playing out? Yeah, no, it's a very serious problem. You see, uh, even this artificial intelligence stuff, it'll go after the very service workers that we are actually in a better position. People like who are, uh, what's it called, uh, you know, executive assistants or accountants or uh, law clerks, the, the somewhat more skilled service jobs are, are now under threat. So we have reached a point in our own historical evolution where we have gone down a certain path and reached it at a point where automation, both in manufacturing and increasingly in services, is threatening the very premise. No, I'm not saying this is imminent. I think that we still have a window of about 10 years before it poses a serious threat. Therefore, this is not very amongst the top worries in my mind. Nevertheless, I think it, it deserves to be a worry and it deserves to be a worry now tied back to the education issue we were talking about because what is the answer to it? It means better education so that the worker is now in more abstract, more, more creative jobs which cannot be easily automated. This is this is not an Indian problem. This is a global problem. Mm -hmm. But given the size of the employment needs that we have, 
for us it becomes a very serious problem so to end this podcast on a little bit of a happy note is the solution more in the political aspect of our life than the economic aspect of our life is that yes. that what we're supposed yes. to concentrate on all our solutions yes. are in politics our solutions are in politics and in patient social norms and public accountability what i will say though is so first first of all it's clear it's there and it's not in it's not in tinkering with specific you know inflation you can do inflation targeting better or you can do better expenditure management or you can do better uh, education policy no it's not there i mean we have some of the best environmental laws in the world uh, but we are doing rampant damage to the environment the point is that we need to create a culture in which we respect our own laws uh we, as long as we don't do that it doesn't matter what the policy is way to get there has to be a more decentralized form of governance the rulers and the ruled are in closer proximity to each other can hold each other more accountable where there is a sense that we are in part of a community where the civic consciousness becomes part of an institutional framework the only place i can see glimpses of this is in kerala it's it's not perfect it's got its own problems but it has still got a structure of decentralized governance where there is voice for the people it is that accountability that mm-hmm. has to come into the system because right now you know for example uh, one example i give often is there is a landfill uh, there are three landfills out of, outside delhi gazipur okla and balsawa those landfills have existed for the last 30 years mm-hmm. and every every two years people, uh, some bright uh, politician will say i know how to solve the problem and the problem never gets solved because it is no one's incentive to solve the problem you have to create a political system within which there is greater accountability of imposed on those who are responsible for our lives to end the podcast maybe it's not minimum governance or maximum governance that we need what we actually need is an awakened governance model thank you so much sir for joining us today 